Will you take your Bibles and join with me this morning by turning to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 1. This morning I would like to speak with you about our Savior's secret devotion to God in prayer. We are continuing our series on understanding spiritual maturity, and certainly this is key. There's perhaps no better gauge of a man's spiritual maturity than his secret devotion to God in prayer. You show me a man that is lax in private prayer, and I will show you a man or a woman that is a spiritual infant. I don't care how long you've known Christ, if you have no secret devotion to God, you remain in a stage of immaturity. Your public prayers will tend to be ritualistic. They will tend to be mechanical, often repetitious, sometimes ostentatious. You will have no appetite for the word. You will have no burden for the lost. You will be infatuated with the pleasures of this world. People without A private prayer life will lack power in ministry. The theme of Christ will seldom be prominent in their conversations because it's not dominant in their heart. In fact, I've never met a person with a robust private prayer life who struggles with things like debilitating depression or addictions or some life-dominating sin. I have never heard a spouse complain about a husband or wife that prays too much. I've never heard a child weep because they have a father or mother that prays too much. I would ask you, do you only pray before meals or do you ever pray before dawn? Most, if they're honest, will say, you know, my prayer life is kind of limited to before meals. Or when some great crisis comes into my life. But frankly, most people are unfamiliar with the mercy seat. They are strangers to the throne of grace. Communing with the lover of their souls is just not a priority because it's not their desire. And why is this? Well, partly because we are a very undisciplined people. But primarily it's because we love other things more than we love the Lord our God. I confess that as a pastor, my greatest frustration is I spend too much time in public ministry and not enough in private communion with the Lord. But I have learned that prayer is more important than preparation. I have learned that the closet is more important than the library. I have learned that the heart is more important than the mind. I have learned that prayer is the spade that unearths hidden jewels in the text. I have learned that prayer is the drill that bores deep into the caverns of living water. 
I have learned that prayer is what calls upon the spirit to give life to the spiritually dead and to dissolve hardened hearts. And I have learned that it is prayer that ignites a preacher with holy zeal and transforms his clumsy rhetoric into tongues of fire. I have learned, beloved, that it is prayer, disciplined, fervent, private, persistent prayer that transforms weak, shallow, cowardly Christians into mighty warriors of the cross. And that's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, Paul says that we are to pray without ceasing. The idea is that we should pray persistently. We should pray regularly. And I would ask you this morning, is this characteristic of your life? It was characteristic of the early church. In fact, Luke described this kind of devotion to prayer even before the day of Pentecost in Acts 1, verse 14. There we read that these all, referring to the apostles, with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Well, this is no surprise because they were merely following the example of our Lord. And we see that here in Mark chapter 1. Let me give you a bit of the context before we look at verses 35 and following. I marvel when I think of our Lord's life. After his baptism, immediately he was taken into the wilderness. The text says that he was there with the wild animals. And there for 40 days he was, he was, he was tempted by Satan. The angels had to come and to minister to him to keep him alive. And then after that, his, his ministry begins in Galilee. Next he calls Peter, James, and John. He goes to Capernaum. And on the Sabbath day, he goes into the synagogue and he begins to preach the gospel to the Jews. In fact, that first day there in the synagogue, he cast out a demon. And one of the men that was there in the synagogue, which demonstrated his authority over the kingdom of darkness. And then immediately from there, he goes into Peter's house where Peter's mother-in-law was sick and dying of a fever. And he comes and miraculously heals her. That's a pretty full day of ministry, wouldn't you think? But the day wasn't finished. In Mark chapter 1, in verse 32, notice what happened. And when evening had come, after the sun had set... They began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. What an amazing day. What an amazing past several weeks. You would think that now it's time for a little R&R, right? 
time to relax and kind of catch your breath and reflect upon what the Father and the Spirit had done in and through him. Good time to take a few days off. But despite our Savior's human fatigue, I want you to notice what happened in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. In the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. What an amazing event. After all that the Son of Man had just accomplished, despite his human fatigue, he has an intense desire to spend time with his Father in heaven. Somehow I can see him getting up from the little room where he was sleeping. It was still dark. The stars would be out. You could see him quietly slipping out of the house and and down the lane. Probably a few dogs begin to bark. He starts moving outside of Capernaum. I've been there. It's a beautiful place. He probably meandered around through some of the hills until he found a little glen, a little secluded place, far from everyone, far from any possibility of someone hearing his voice. And there he drops to his knees and he begins to pray. Dear Christians, secret prayer was our Savior's habit. The question is, is it yours? If not, why not? If the Son of God, who had no sin, had such an intense desire to labor in private prayer, how much more should we? being so prone to sin. Frankly, most Christians are mere loiterers. They are not laborers in prayer. And yet, this is not the example of the Lord. I want to address the matter of prayer from two perspectives, one one today and the other next week. But the first perspective that we'll look at today is just some of the lessons from our Savior's secret devotion to God in prayer. And then the next time we're together, we'll look at lessons from our Savior's outline, his model for prayer. And my prayer for you is that the Spirit of God will take his word and develop within you the mind of Christ that you might be devoted to prayer as he was. As we look at verse 35... Again, where we read in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. I believe there are four great lessons that emerge from this text that I want us to focus upon this morning. The first lesson is that prayer reveals an intense longing to commune with God. Secondly, we will see that prayer should be the first priority to prepare our day. Thirdly, we will see that solitude is the sanctuary of prayer. And finally, we will see that prayer is as important in times of blessing as it is in times of distress. So let's look at this more closely. Now, any of you who have ever spent time teaching know that it is an exhausting task, especially when you're interacting with people as the Lord had done that day. 
And then, if you've ever experienced power encounters, and certainly I've never experienced it like Jesus did, but I have experienced demonic forces in people. My friends, that is utterly exhausting. And yet, we see here that he doesn't give up. He doesn't stay in bed and sleep. Instead, we see the incarnate Christ who was without sin, therefore without any need for confession. He had no pleading, no need for forgiveness of sin, no need for restoration. Instead, he merely longs to be with his Father and the Spirit. Now remember, Jesus knew that his source of of strength and certainly the place where he would go to supplicate for all that the Father had given him was there with his Father. But we see that his intense longing for intimate communion was motivated primarily by his perfect love and intimate enjoyment of sweet fellowship with God. Again, does this describe you? Hopefully you've experienced this at some human level. I mean, just think of your husband or your wife, those of you that are married. I know that the times that I have that I can spend with my dear wife is done not out of duty, but out of desire. It's motivated because of my love for her and her love for me which results in just the oneness of fellowship and the joy that flows from that. How much more so the soul-satisfying perfections of the triune Godhead. Now think about it. No man, save the God-man Jesus, has ever known the soul-satisfying joy of, of perfect fellowship and communion with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And while every saint enjoys some level of, of joy in that, that fellowship because of the varying uh, places we are with respect to our walk with Christ, uh, we still, even though our fellowship is imperfect, we still enjoy spending time with the Lord. How much more so the Lord Jesus? But I think about the imperfect fellowship that we have right now. Our communion is is hampered because of remaining sin, because of our unredeemed bodies that await glorification. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 9, that we only know in part. He went on to say, but when the perfect comes, in other words, the eternal state, the partial will be done away. He says, for, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Can you imagine what that will be like? He says, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully just as I have been fully known. But folks, even now, in our state of unredeemed humanness, that sweetness, that ineffable joy of communing with the lover of our souls is the greatest experience that we have available to us, the sight of heaven. And if that does not ring true with you, then you know nothing of a secret devotion to God in prayer. All who have truly tasted of the Lord, who have experienced just the inexpressible uh, joy 
of being in his presence and experienced his power. Want more. You're never satisfied. That's why David declared in Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Asaph, the chief musician of Israel, writes in Psalm 73, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I have nothing on earth. He went on to say in verse 28, The nearness to God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. And you will recall what Paul said in Philippians 3.8, that he counted all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In verse 10, he went on to describe how he longed to know him and the power of his resurrection. You know, one of the greatest benefits of our justification is that, according to Romans 5.11, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. In other words, we glory in him. We revel in him. We find our joy in him. We rejoice in him. We boast on account of him. We exult in God. God is the supreme source of our joy. He is our greatest satisfaction in life. And as a result of this, we long to be with him. My friend, if you have no intense longing to commune with God, then you don't exult in him for some reason. Perhaps you don't know him. Or perhaps you know little of what he has accomplished in your life, being reconciled to him through Christ. Or perhaps just in your stubbornness, you're walking far from him. One of the ancient priests of Israel writes in Psalm 42.1, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for the living, thirsts for God, for the living God. The imagery there is that of a deer who's dying of dehydration. And that's how we must be, thirsty souls that cannot survive apart from the life-giving waters of communion with God. This is why David said in Psalm 16, verse 8, I have set the Lord continually before me. You see, he knew what it meant to exalt in God. And for that reason, he had an intense longing to commune with him. Therefore, he says, my heart is glad and my, my, my glory, literally my whole being, rejoices. And he went on to say in verse 11, Thou wilt make known to me the path of life, In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. We can only imagine the the blessed nature of our Lord's interaction with the Father and the Spirit. But child of God, do not forget this. This is also available to us. Because we have been hidden in Christ. For indeed God is our Father. The Spirit of God dwells within us. In fact, according to Romans 8, verse 26, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The great Oxford theologian back in the 17th century, 
an English Puritan pastor by the name of Joseph Aileen, who, by the way, had a profound impact on Charles Spurgeon, wrote this to a dear friend, quote, Though I am apt to be unsettled and quickly set off the hinges, yet, methinks, I am like a bird out of the nest. I am never quite till I am, I am never quiet till I am in my old way of communion with God. Like the needle in the compass that is restless till it be turned toward the pole. I can say through grace with the church, quote, with my soul I have desired thee in the night and with my spirit within me I have sought thee early. He said, my heart is early and late with God. Tis the business and delight of my life to seek him, end quote. Would that we all enjoy such delight as a result of private worship. And we must remember that God greatly delights in our communion with him. Proverbs 15.8 says that the prayer of the upright are his delight. So not only does prayer reveal an intense longing to commune with God, but secondly, prayer should be the first priority to, to prepare our day. Now, we don't see this as a command, but we do see it as an example throughout Scripture. Again, in Mark 1.35, in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house. He goes to a secluded place and he prays. So in other words, before looking upon another face, he wants to see the face of his father. Before hearing any other voice of any other person, he longs to hear the voice of his father. Before any demand is placed upon him, he seeks the strength and the wisdom of the Most High. Beloved, morning prayer produces midday power and it produces midnight joy. A godly man would no more start his day without prayer than he would enter into a day of hard labor without eating any food. Spurgeon said, quote, Take not thou to running till thou hast in prayer laid every weight aside, lest thou lose the race. End quote. My friend, no ministry will be effective. No marriage will be fulfilling. No family will ever be blessed apart from the pleadings of private prayer. As we look at the context of this passage, there is good reason to believe that it was that very day that Jesus preached his Sermon on the Mount. Let me draw your attention for a moment to another passage in Psalm chapter 5, verse 3. Here we have David's lament, and he says, In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Now, most fail to realize this, but serving Christ is war. Serving Christ is war. Jesus experienced this every minute of the day. Sometimes the battle is fierce. Those involved know all too well what I'm talking about. And those who are involved in the battle for the gospel are very acquainted with solitary morning private worship. And what I want to say to you 
dear friends, is that most Christians pray little because they fight little. They never suffer. But those who fight suffer much. Those who are on the front line of the great gospel commission know the fatigue and the pain and the sorrow and the wounds and the casualties of battle. And when I'm talking about serving Christ, there's many ways we can do that. But we all are commanded to be involved at some level of discipleship, face-to-face, one-on-one, Bibles open, involvement, intentional involvement with other people. And when you're involved in that way with the lives of others, believe me, you will not have to force yourself to find your closet. You will want to live there. Communion with the Almighty will be the last activity before you go to sleep. And it will be the first priority when you wake. And I would submit to you that prayer will never be the early dawn priority of the sluggard that likes to sleep in. Nor will it be the priority of the Sunday morning Christian that pretends to be serving Christ for a few hours on Sunday morning and then the rest of the week lives for him or herself. But it absolutely will be the priority for the battle-weary soldier of the cross who is constantly crying out for more strength, who's begging for more discernment, who's pleading for more light in the Word, who is imploring the Lord for, for more boldness in battle. Because this soldier knows that he can do nothing apart from God. Therefore, he will attempt nothing without first seeking his aid. Paul said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What better time to plead for that strength than first thing in the morning? We all know what it's like to endure some trial in our life. You know what it's like when you can't sleep. It's like the computer screen is on and you can't get it out of your mind. And then when you finally do go to sleep, what's the first thing you think of when you wake up? That trial. This is the same for the soldier of the cross. Those who are fighting that battle always experience the burden for the lost. There is ever with them the constant sorrow of the prodigal. There is ever with them the pain of persecution. And my friends, that kind of Christian will be no stranger to prayer before dawn. Persecuted saints know this all too well. I've talked with many of them before. Even some of our missionaries will describe how that their little children will be sleeping in blissful ignorance, not knowing the dangers that are lurking outside of their little home, while the parents are kneeling all through the night, agonizing in prayer. They are the ones that will pray as Paul commanded. They will understand what it means to be anxious for nothing. But in everything, with what? With prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, that peace that they long for, 
which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Beloved, please understand, when the battle is so fierce that you're unable to sleep, when the tears roll down your cheeks as you agonize over the people that God has called you to minister to, then you will crave that life-sustaining communion with the Lord. Only then will you cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 121.1, I will lift up my eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord which made heaven and earth. I remember that verse from when I was a little boy. Now I understand it. I was moved by the words of Joseph Aline's wife, the man that I referred to a moment ago, when she wrote regarding this subject after his death. Here's what she wrote, quote, At the time of his health, he did rise constantly at or before four of the o'clock and would be much troubled if he heard smiths or other craftsmen at their trades before he was at communion with God. He would say to me often, How this noise shames me. Does not my master deserve more than theirs? From four till eight he spent in prayer, holy contemplation and singing of psalms, in which he much delighted and did daily practice alone as well as in the family. Sometimes, she went on to say, he would suspend the routine of parochial engagements and devote whole days to these secret exercises in order to which he would contrive to be alone in some void house or else in some sequestered spot in the open valley. Here there would be much prayer and meditation on God in heaven, end quote. The Apostle Paul tells us that we are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And if you look at the context of that particular exhortation in 1 Timothy 4, you will see that it has to do with laboring and striving for Christ. But I would submit to you that unless you're laboring and striving for Christ, disciplining yourself in that way, you will never have a desire for pre-dawn worship or any worship for that matter. You see, friends, our, our longing for God is proportional to our love for Him. And our love for Him is really measured by our willingness to serve Him and to suffer for Him. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Isaiah understood this in 26 verse 9. At, at night my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. As we look at Psalm 5 verses 1 through 3, again, David's lament. There we read, Give ear to my words, he says, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Do you ever come and groan before the Lord? Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. You see, morning seems to be the most fitting time to meet with God, giving Him our day 
This is the time when our minds are the sharpest. In fact, Spurgeon said, prayer should be the key of the day and the lock of the night. Devotion should be both the morning star and the evening star. But I want you to notice something in Psalm 5 at the end of verse 3. The Hebrew is very interesting here. He says, in the morning I will order, which means direct. I will direct my prayer to thee and eagerly watch. And that term order was used to describe the laying in order of the wood and the pieces of the victim on the altar for sacrifice. It was also used for putting the showbread on the table. So the idea here is, I will carefully and purposely arrange and order my prayer before thee in the same way the priest would arrange the morning sacrifice, in the same way my prayers, therefore, will be acceptable to you. Now, there's a place for praying while we're driving to work. I understand that. But, dear friends, there is a place for uninterrupted times of orderly, organized prayer. Notice he says, I will eagerly watch. In other words, I'm going to expect an answer. I'm going to eagerly look for it. And I fear too often we treat our prayer life with contempt as if it is some unwelcomed intrusion upon our life. After all, I am so busy. It's kind of like driving through the fast food line. We want to hurry up and get something to eat because we've got something more important to do. We want to perform our spiritual disciplines the same way we operate our internet. We want everything high speed, quick, right there. Wishing our prayers could be run on some kind of a faster modem. Think, think how our priorities have become so selfish. Think about this. We demand high speed internet, instant messaging, cell phones. Sometimes they're even attached to our ears so we can never miss a call. We've got email, text messaging, Twitter, and tweets. I don't understand all that, but some of you do. All this technology to be able to communicate with man. And some of you spend hours every day communicating with each other. And most of it is frivolous dribble. And yet we have no time for God. We rush into the presence of the king without any forethought, without any humility, as if his presence is some, some huge imposition on our time. What a blasphemy to demand an audience with the Most High. And then we multitask while we spout off a quick praise and a few hasty petitions. Too often our petitions are hastily contrived, they're self-serving, they are utterly bereft of any meditation, any organization, any groaning. There's no desire for God to work within us in such a way as to ultimately bring Him glory. It's tantamount to prayers before meals or a mere, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray thee God my soul to keep. Our prayers lack fervency because too often they are whipped up on the run. 
how can we honestly expect the king to answer such insolent requests when we've given no forethought to them? How can we expect him to be moved by that which we've given so little attention? Needless to say, without thoughtful preparation, there will be no patient expectation as was with the psalmist. But not so our precious Savior. And this is why prayer was the priority of his day, the passion of his heart. Thirdly, we see that solitude is the sanctuary of prayer. Notice again, it says that he went away to a secluded place and was praying there. We see the Savior's desire for seclusion in other passages. In Luke 6, 12, uh, where he prayed before choosing uh, the 12 disciples, we read, and it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 23, after he had fed over 25,000 people, we read that immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. By the way, a few hours later, the disciples were terrified in a storm. Jesus walks out to them on the water Peter comes to him, you remember the story, and then Jesus calms the storm. In light of Israel's rejection, and just before he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Luke tells us in chapter 9, verse 12, that he was praying alone. He prayed alone in his high priestly prayer that we read earlier this morning in John 17. And there, my friends, he interceded on our behalf. He prayed alone in the Garden of Gethsemane where he sweat great drops of blood in anticipation of what he would endure on our behalf. He prayed alone when he hung upon the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And then later he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. But Jesus commanded us to pray in private. Matthew 6, verse 6. There we read, but... You, when you pray, in other words, unlike the Pharisees that like to pray on the street corner so everybody can hear them, but you, when you pray, go into your room, which basically means the most private place available. Go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And here in Mark 1, And in other places, we see how the Lord deliberately sought out secluded places to pray. Now, why would he do this? Well, certainly it would be to commune with God without distraction and without an audience. We are not to be like the hypocrites who in Matthew 6, 5 says uh, they pray in order to be seen by men. By the way, that's not a prohibition against public prayer, but it is against pretentious prayer. But there's more. Solitude offers more. May I suggest a few things that we see as we examine the Word of God? Certainly, number one, solitude gives us an atmosphere that is free of distractions. I was reading some research done by the Associated Press. Do you realize that the average attention span of 
a person in 2012 is eight seconds. By the way, that's down from in 2000, 12 years ago, it was 12 seconds. I also found it interesting that a goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. I mean, we've been programmed to look here and there to, you know, we do all of these things and that's just how we, how we think these days. I would ask you, how many of you have taken one hour, just one hour in the last month? and sat down and meditated on a passage of Scripture. How many of you have taken just 30 minutes to read a book and yet think of the thousands of hours you spend doing so many other things? You know, we're like little babies that grasp at anything that sparkles. Satan's world system is programming us to be useful idiots that never think past their nose. How rude to seek the Lord's face without any provision, without any interruptions. Our Lord deserves our undivided, uninterrupted attention. But secondly, seclusion provides an opportunity for intimacy. There we can pour out our hearts to God. We can freely express ourselves. I would ask you, do you feel more at ease communing with your husband or your wife in private? Or would you feel comfortable in doing it up here in front of everyone? Obviously, no. Intimacy provides or solitude provides an atmosphere of intimacy. I would say thirdly that solitude provides for us an atmosphere where we can pray out loud, where we can talk with the Lord, when we can give full throat to our supplication, where we can cry out to the Lord. You know, Jesus in the garden fell down on his face and we read that, that he cries out, my father, if, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but thou wilt. I'm sure many of you are like me. I, I love to, to be out someplace and especially to be able to walk and talk with the Lord out in, in nature. Somehow the sanctuary of God's creation provides the perfect acoustics to let your voice be raised up to the Lord. And sometimes I imagine him in my mind that I can turn and I can talk with him and and I'm sure you've done the same thing. And as I think about it, Paul says in Romans 8 that, that all of creation is groaning, waiting eagerly for the Lord to return. Why not just join in with them? But solitude provides that kind of atmosphere. What solemn, sacred, sweet dialogues await those who come to the Lord in secret prayer. A fourth reason why solitude is so important is, friends, it gives you an opportunity to commune in silence. You know, we talk way too much, don't we? We meditate too little. What a joy it is to be able to take a passage of Scripture and to read it and to meditate upon it 
in the presence of the one who has revealed it to us, the one who has saved us by it. May I encourage you in your prayer life to not only have a list of things that you pray for, but but have the word open. Let the word always be a catalyst to your prayers. Pray the word because it is the living word of the living God. What soul-satisfying joy there is in just being silently at times in the presence of our Redeemer. Well, fourthly, we see from this text that prayer is as important in times of blessing as it is in times of distress. Now, remember, we must pray to obtain a blessing, but here we see that we must pray all the more after we have received it. Now think about this. Why would Jesus pray after all that he had just done? Well, the answer is for protection from the enemy. He had already endured him for 40 days in the wilderness. You see, friends, great blessings spark great warfare. Jesus understood that. There are many blessings here at Calvary Bible Church. We continue to see God pour out his love upon us. But my, are we targets of the enemy? Even right now, we are under spiritual attack. Most of you will never know about the things that are going on. But certainly I do. And the elders know some of them. Some of them you wouldn't believe if I were to tell you. But the reason we must pray after receiving great blessing is not merely because of some type of satanic, demonic retaliation, even though that is there. But we have to pray because of our flesh. That's our enemy. You see, it's easy when God gives us a blessing for us to become self-sufficient. It's easy for us to become proud. And then we become lethargic in our service. We become lax in our sober-mindedness. It's easy when blessing comes our way for us to be to become lax and our zeal begins to diminish and our faith begins to degenerate into presumption. Blessings then can become the fuel for some sense of entitlement. All of these things we are prone to. Gradually, if we're not careful, we can become like the church at Ephesus in Ephesians, I mean, Revelation 2, where they left their first love for Christ. That that passionate, chaste, pure love like a husband would have for his newly wedded bride. And we can degenerate into just a loveless orthodoxy or like so much of the church today, be a part of a Christless Christianity. But Jesus prayed also for what lay in front of him and that was his Galilean ministry. And what was his priority in his ministry? Notice verse 36. This is fascinating. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. Now, let's get the context here. They wake up. It's breakfast time. Where's Jesus? I don't know. Oh, my goodness. Look outside. Look at all the people. Where's Jesus? So it says that they hunted for him and they found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. By the way, that, that phrase, looking for you, 
is, is used 10 times in Mark's gospel. And every time it is used, it is used with a, a negative connotation. So the idea here is, is they're a bit frustrated. Jesus, everyone is looking for you. What are you doing out here on the, some hillside all alone? I, don't you see? You're missing such a great opportunity. Look at all the people. There are seekers everywhere. You have really connected with the people. You have connected with the culture. Look at these crowds. You see, what has happened now, word has gotten around. I mean, this man Jesus has healed these people. He's cast out demons. Man, let's get all of our sick relatives and loved ones. He's fed these people. I mean, all of these folks are just ecstatic here. And so they're looking for Jesus. But friends, they were just curious. They were looking for another miracle. They weren't looking for a savior. And isn't it sad? Like, like so many today, the disciples confused excitement with conviction. There's a huge difference between enthusiastic crowds and those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's amazing, isn't it? At the very outset of Jesus' ministry, his own disciples unwittingly, in their ignorance and misplaced zeal, seek to corrupt the very mission that Jesus came to fulfill. So he says to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby. Well, you wouldn't have expected that, would you? You mean, you would have expected him to say, oh, my goodness, really? People, oh, my, I'm, let's go, guys. No, it's not what he said. Let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby in order that I may preach there also, for that is what I came out for. You see, my friends, Jesus came to preach the gospel. That was his primary objective. He came to save sinners, to reconcile them unto himself. He didn't come to merely meet physical needs. If I can put it in a way that we could understand it, he didn't come to fix our marriages. He didn't come to straighten out our kids, to boost our our self-esteem or to help us recover from our addictions. He didn't come to make us successful or give us some special purpose in life. He didn't come to save the planet, to ban abortion. This might come as as a surprise to some of you, but he didn't come to help us elect conservatives. He came to save sinners. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And no doubt this was the theme of his pre-dawn prayers. Father, Spirit, help me as I preach the gospel. He came to the lost sheep of Israel first. And with every gospel presentation, he knew he was walking inexorably towards the cross. In fact, it's fascinating. We read how that he always goes into the synagogues. And the synagogues were constructed in such a way that every one of them would be designed where the speaker would be facing Jerusalem. So here he would be in Galilee. So the, the place where the speaker would be would be facing south towards Jerusalem. 
And also, when the people would leave, they would go out the door towards Jerusalem. And as I think about it, every time the Lord stood up to preach and to teach, he was facing the place where he would go to be a sacrifice for sin. Knowing what he must face, he prayed. And my friends, knowing what he faced on our behalf, we should also pray that others would be saved and also pray in private worship to give him praise for what he's done. In closing, may I say something very lovingly as your pastor, but as forthrightly as I know how to put it. If you serve at Calvary Bible Church in some capacity, and you have no secret devotion to God, if you have no habit of prayer, I would ask you to repent or step down from whatever you're doing until you get your private worship in order. Because you see, my friends, you have nothing to offer except what's in your flesh. We don't need your flesh. We need the Spirit. And you will not be empowered by the Spirit unless you get serious about your private devotion to God. So won't you get in the battle? And once you get in the battle, you'll have no problem running to the Lord in secret. You'll have no problem learning what it means to order your prayers. And maybe even beginning tomorrow, you can take some time in the morning, even if it's for just a few minutes, to refresh your soul in solitude and plead with the Savior to give you strength for that day, to give Him thanks for all that He's done, and to empower you to be bold for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for these truths. My, what an amazing example we have from our Lord. I pray that by the power of Your Spirit, we would emulate what we see in our Christ. For indeed, you have called us to be conformed to his image. Move upon our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author, Dr. David Harrell. For more information or for other messages from Dr. Harrell, please visit the Olive Tree Christian Resources website at otcr.org.